0: mindfulness. I can say honestly after all these years, many, many thousands of hours practicing and many thousands of um, people I've taught in one way or another and written about mindfulness. done a little bit of research on it, you know, after all of that, I still am not totally sure what it is. And I don't say that to be like false humble and like, oh, it's such a, ah, it's a humble thing to say. No, like I really am not totally sure what it is. And uh, It may be that uh, we think we have to begin with a definition of mindfulness and then we we practice and we grow. But it may be that actually mindfulness, understanding what it is, is the fruition. That when we really know what mindfulness is, that's actually the fruit of our practice rather than the starting point. I think often about a line that that, uh, Gil has uh, a remark he's made which is something like if you're meditating you're learning to meditate. It's not that we once were beginners and learned to meditate and now we're just meditating it's actually a continual act of discovery and deepening and uh, new richness and nuance being revealed. And so from this perspective, you know, asking the question, what is mindfulness is a little bit to my mind, like asking the question, what is awakening? The book, uh, Waking Up by Sam Harris, Uh, he writes, our minds are all we have, they are all we ever had and they are all we can offer others. Most of us could easily compile a list of goals we want to achieve or personal problems that need to be solved. But what is the real significance of every item on such a list? Everything we want to accomplish is something that promises, if done, would allow us to finally relax and enjoy our lives in the present. Generally speaking, this is a false hope. I'm not denying the importance of achieving one's goals, maintaining one's health, or keeping one's children clothed and fed. But most of us spend our time seeking happiness and security without acknowledging the underlying purpose of our search. Each of us is looking for a path back to the present. We are trying to find good enough reasons to be satisfied now. In general, I, I've I've given Dharma talks on a lot of different topics, but I don't actually know that I've given a Dharma talk on mindfulness on sati, um, and that's not a a warning that I'm anticipating <laughs> this is going to be a disaster. Although it may, <laughs> it's it's more that uh, that. M- mindfulness is woven into all of the other Dharma topics that it's impossible to talk about any of them without also talking about mindfulness. And so usually the way we talk about mindfulness is in the context of so much else. Uh, Now, consciousness, which is not identical to mindfulness, but consciousness, it is this very mysterious thing. It's it's presumed to, to arise from the activity of the brain. Uh, but exactly how that happens, how that works, is a deep, problematic, philosophical question. It's actually been called the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. And so this is a a philosopher who writes, uh, it's undeniable that some organisms are subjects of experience, but the question of how it is that they are subjects of experience is perplexing. Why is it that when our cognitive systems engage in processing visual or auditory information, Why is it that we have visual or auditory experience? The quality of deep blue, the sensation of middle C. Why should physical processing give rise to a rich inner life at all? This is a Philosophical conundrum in a way, and not one that that will will solve. But in reflecting on that, it makes sense to me that um, in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes consciousness. You know that that famous line from a, a Mahayana sutra. Um, uh, you know about viewing this this life, this fleeting life as a star, a bubble, a dream, a phantom, a very kind of mysterious quality of being conscious now, the word mindfulness one teacher said like as mindfulness is Made its way into popular culture. It's been used in so many different ways that he feels like we have to just start again. We just have to throw out the word mindfulness because it's it's like a pocket into which so many different things have been put. And in fact, uh, Jon Kabat-Zinn, who who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, and is is largely responsible for. Uh, a lot of the interest in mindfulness in the West um, had used that word mindfulness, essentially as a placeholder for the entirety of the Dharma. And so he writes, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction was, was developed as one of a possibly infinite number of skillful means for bringing the Dharma into mainstream settings. It's never been about MBSR for its own sake. It's always been about the M. And the M is a very big M. We use the word mindfulness intentionally as an umbrella term to describe our work and to link it explicitly to what I've always considered to be a universal dharma that is coextensive, if not identical, with the teachings of the Buddha. And so as a consequence, the word word mindfulness um, has become a kind of umbrella term. It's become something into which uh, many meanings get get loaded. And the truth is that mindfulness is, is a kind of precious jewel within the Dharma. Uh, in in yeah, Yad paṇika Tara so mindfulness is the unfailing master key for knowing the mind and is thus the starting point the perfect tool for shaping the mind and is thus the focal point, the lofty manifestation of the achieved freedom of the mind and thus the culminating point. So how can we unpack this a bit? mindfulness is, it's more nuanced, it's even more complicated in a sense than ordinary consciousness, ordinary knowing. It's, it's not merely to know, it's really to know that we're knowing. We can have lots of different experience. We do. It's it's uh, unrelenting, right? We can have lots of experience w- in the same way that that um, Joseph Goldstein says a black Labrador has lots of experience, right? They, they call it black lab consciousness, right? Black labs definitely are smelling. Th- they are definitely having uh olfactory experience right but that is fundamentally different than a mindful experience of smelling right and so what really we're doing is is knowing phenomena as phenomena we're not. We're not merely experiencing the object. We're actually experiencing it as an object, as a sensory experience. Does this make sense? Yeah. Right. Uh, this is the difference between uh, mindlessness and mindfulness. Is that that quality of of knowing. And that, that move, that gesture of knowing phenomena as phenomena, has massive implications. Massive. So, in in the scientific literature, mindfulness usually gets talked about as having two facets. So, um, the first is. Something like present time awareness. And the second is equanimity. And we'll talk more, Nikki will talk more about equanimity, which is also one of the factors of of awakening. Um, But these two facets actually, uh, I think, capture something important about the quality of mindfulness. So this present time awareness piece is, is about uh, stability and clarity and alertness. So we can think of the analogy of like uh, looking at a, the moon in a telescope, through a telescope. And if that telescope were shaking, we would miss the grandeur of the moon, right? Or if it were out of focus. Or if it were stable and in focus, but we were really sleepy, and consciousness was lapsing in and out, that would be problematic. And so we we stabilize, we focus, and we remain alert to the object, and in that way we can actually uh, see, sense the grandeur of the the moon, or whatever it is we're looking at. This is important because, um, as Sayadaw Tejaniya says, we're really interested in like, in how suffering gets generated, how the cause-effect relationships that lead to suffering or ease. And with the lack of stability of our awareness, Tejaniya says it's akin to like missing chapters in a book. We actually lose the through line of what's happening. But it's through this stable, continuity of attention, that we actually get to see the causal processes that led us to this moment. This moment as peaceful or agitated, as joyous or sorrowful. But it's through that, that continuity of attention that we actually get to see th- some of the mechanisms through which suffering and ease is generated. Now this kind of, um, this kind of attention, this, this dimension of, of present time awareness, it, it really depends on some curiosity which is kind of, from one, one perspective, sort of the lifeblood of this practice, that if we actually, if we just want relief, it's hard to stay on the path just wanting relief. What actually keeps us on the path is curiosity and curiosity and interest. What is this? What is happening? That is, uh, um, that's, a, that's a very, uh, yeah, it's a, just a critical piece in keeping the momentum of practice. It can replace discipline entirely. If we're curious, we can entrust our practice to curiosity. this present time awareness piece? Now, sometimes people say, and maybe you've heard yourself say this in your own mind today, I'm being mindful of it, now what do I do? Or I'm being mindful of it, it still sucks, (laughs) right? Sometimes, okay maybe that's just how it is Uh, but a lot of times when it's like i'm being mindful but what's next what more that that feeling usually signals that there may be some present time awareness but there's a relative absence of equanimity the second component of mindfulness This is Sharon Salzberg. Even in a day or an hour, we can experience so many extremes of pleasure and pain. The question is, how can a human heart, my heart or your heart, absorb the continual unremitting contrast of this life without feeling shattered and thinking that we can't bear it? Battered by the changes, the heart-mind can become brittle or rigid. The Buddha said our hearts can wilt as a flower when it's been out in the sun for too long. So the, this equanimity piece, this, this way of, um, of making peace with the tides of pleasure and pain, is, is a key piece of mindfulness. And so sometimes equanimity gets translated as, um, as non-interference, non-manipulation of experience. Uh, one of my main teachers, Shinzen Yang, called it a radical permission to feel. It's, it's, a, uh, it's like a way of removing some of the friction with experience, some of the need to control what's arising to kind of, you know that, that mode of where we just like wanna get in there, like get into experience and just like usher this part along and hold on to this part and just kind of mold and shape our experience. There's this tendency of like, we wanna reach out and mold life. And equanimity is actually about uh, letting experience fully come to us, come through us, to know ourselves as experience. And so, As we practice, um, it's a little bit like we ask this question, what is it like to be human? And how can I make peace with the human condition? How can I allow the human condition to uh, soften rather than harden the heart? this equanimity is is critical there. And so we sit and we, uh, in some ways we're trying to take in uh, kind of bearable doses of the human condition, bearable doses of vulnerability, the vulnerability of being human of having these sense, senses that are being touched all the time. And so we sit and we, you know, breath by breath are making peace with what it's like to be human, with the human condition. Some researchers did, uh, did a study on about a thousand, thousand people, And they were looking, investigating these two components of mindfulness, roughly present time awareness and equanimity. And um, so they categorized people into different groups. Uh, About 60% got categorized, you know, these these people answered some questions and then they, they did a statistical analysis and categorize them. And 60% were were categorized as being in the low mindfulness group. About 25% in the high mindfulness group. Then about 10% that were high in the present time awareness, but low in equanimity. And then another 7% or so of people who were uh, high in equanimity but low in present time awareness. Does that makes sense. And then they were curious, okay, how do these how are these groups doing? Like how are they doing with life? And they looked at let's see, depressive symptoms, worry, mood instability, distress tolerance. And what they found was that Uh, the group that was high in present-time awareness and low in equanimity was the most um, distressed group, the most symptomatic group. Because it's like this acute awareness of observation of the intensity of being human, but then without the kind of... uh, Balancing force of equanimity yeah. and so as we practice we can actually inquire into the these two features of mindfulness this present time awareness and equanimity now that's that's uh maybe the the kind of scientific characterization of it but um i when i think about mindfulness i i often think back to a a story my friend was telling me some years ago now uh, who was he was in a um, at a dance dance workshop uh in london for two or three days and this wasn't like classical, you know, classical dance or anything. This was much more like, expressive, like put your emotion uh, into your body, put your autobiography into your body, let that be your dance. Like, let's see what that is. And so, a very kind of free form, expressive, and uh, a deep mindfulness practice, like how do we actually, how, how does the body move when we try to say what our heart wants to say? Yeah. And so that was the the kind of form of, of practice that they were doing. And at some point during this workshop, which is about 100 people, the teacher said, okay, Turn to somebody. Take a partner. And for the next two hours, you're gonna dance with this person. And your assignment in those two hours is to fall in love with them. We're not gonna ask you to do that. (laughs) And I... uh, I wonder what that assignment is like. I can imagine though, I can imagine looking into somebody's eyes in the course of those couple hours and seeing all of the joy and sorrow and the vulnerability, the self-consciousness, the dignity, the love, the beauty, the pain, I can imagine looking into their eyes and seeing all of that and being seen in that way. And it's not so hard for me to imagine something like falling in love with that person. In mindfulness practice, we don't have a partner that we're dancing with, but we're turning that same quality of attention on our own life. We're coming into that same heartfelt, softened relation to our own life. In a sense, uh, falling in love in a way. Now, as we we attend with mindfulness, uh, We move from a kind of more narrow concern about the stuff of life, my plans, my projects, my people, myself. We move from that mode of the world of things to a world of experience. to actually coming more and more to, to rest in an awareness of phenomena as phenomena. And that's not to discount the reality of the world or that there's much to negotiate or that we have to take the world seriously. It's not to discount the role of loving and caring for the world but it is to start to take a sense of of refuge in awareness. And we actually can start caring more about awareness than we do about our life, our so-called life. And there can be a very deep safety as we step out of the world of of rearranging the things of our life and start to relax into the flow of experience, the flow of changing phenomena of which we are part. in this way we could say that that mindfulness um, it starts to it starts to make the inner life feel more and more safe it actually feels more and more safe to to rest in our experience mindfulness makes experience safe In this process, um, much of our time is is really uh, spent orienting, orienting in, in the sense that we're uh, becoming clear on what's happening moment by moment. We be move from being lost to being alert, clear, steady in awareness, oriented in a way. But there's this other important dimension of mindfulness which we could call disorientation. As we get quiet, we start to notice how compulsively driven we are to stay oriented, to the past, to the future, to the present. Oh yeah, this is the present, between sandwich between past and future to become oriented to, to the whole sense of time and space. This is me, this is the world. And it's like we're, we're compulsively reminding ourselves of this and no doubt, there are adaptive functions, like animals need to know where they are, what's around them. And there are certain kinds of peace that are um, obscured when we're compulsively oriented to space and time. we notice the kind of ongoing narration of where I am, who I am, where I'm going, my life as this project, this retreat as a project, this sit as a project, this life as a project. And we fit ourselves into that timeline, that narration It can feel unsafe almost to settle back into some disorientation. In silence, in stillness, we know less and less about where we are and who we are. But it's, it's actually safe. We, we, have to, it's a, we have to develop a kind of tolerance in the sense of that it can be safe to be for everything to start to get vague. To not be compulsively reminding ourselves who we are, where we are. The bottom of the moment starts to fall out. An important piece of mindfulness. So, so I, I is Joseph uh, Goldstein saying that. Um, You know, the the first, uh, the first realization is we're falling out of a plane without a parachute. And the second realization is that there's no ground. (laughs) If anything, death feels like the ground. I think we, with mindfulness practice, we get get more that more safe in that free fall. That free fall actually starts to be uh, a kind of refuge, as strange as that language sounds. So one more thing to say. Um, which is only, like, a tiny bit of joke. Probably not funny, but it's a tiny bit of joke. Uh, Which, that's truthful. Uh, I, I don't actually care about mindfulness. I care about suffering. in the mindfulness world, insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, it's helpful to remember that uh, not to turn mindfulness into a kind of fetish almost, you know, to turn anything into the holy grail. Like that just doesn't seem helpful. Like It's a deep impulse to turn something into the Holy Grail. Mindfulness, emptiness, awakening. Things get weird when we have a Holy Grail. Our path is about improvisation, about meeting suffering, skillfully as we can. And we may think we care about mindfulness or about whatever, but I think what we care about is suffering. And so um, with this this whole thing, this whole mindfulness practice, we can stay, loose with it, it doesn't, we don't have to feel like we're kind of walking on eggshells in a certain way or, you know, like trying so hard to be mindful. Sometimes there's a lot of self that creeps into that, the kind of super self-conscious mode of mindfulness and we can we can be quite uh, serious about practice, serious about liberation, serious about freedom, serious about not suffering, and hold and serious about mindfulness, but hold it lightly. So just as a, a small kind of practice assignment for that you can pick up if you like, um, it'd be something like the question, what what is mindfulness? And you can bracket everything you've heard and everything that I just said. What what is it? What does it mean to be awake in this moment? Let's just sit for a moment.